Hi, and welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. Thank you so much for listening. If this is your first time listening to BTS Podcast, the BTS stands for Behind the Scenes. I talk to people about what they do, how they do it, and how they manage what they do with everything else in their lives. This episode is part three in a series that I did with organizers in Duluth, Minnesota, who were working on a project for CJMM at the time. CJMM is the Clayton Jackson McGee Memorial. If you have not listened to the previous two episodes with the co-founders of Blackbird Revolt, Jordan Moses and Teresa Moses, please do. They share such a wealth of knowledge as does my guest in this episode, Heidi Bach-Hansen. Heidi spends a lot of time educating folks about the connection between historical realities and present realities. And as you may have noticed, if you have paid attention at all to the news for the past several months, years, depending on when you started tuning in, there has not been a lot that has changed. CJMM was formed in June of 2000, and it was a culmination of years of individual people keeping the stories of what happened to Isaac McGee, Elmer Jackson, and Elias Clayton alive in their own way. There was a book by Michael Fetto called The Lynchings in Duluth, which I highly recommend that you read. It's really, it's heavy, and it's definitely worth a read to better understand what leads up to a hate crime like a lynching. CJMM's mission is to foster racial justice and promote healing and reconciliation in their community in Duluth, Minnesota. They are also the first city to construct a memorial honoring the lives of those taken in a lynching. And in this episode, Heidi, my guest, and I talk about the importance of that and why that matters and some disagreements within the community that continue to go on but were more prevalent earlier on and how we still see those same injustices today. So it's really important that organizers such as Heidi and those who are involved with CJMM are doing this work and educating people on why this work is important. A little bit of background on Heidi. She moved to Duluth, Minnesota, and she'd met some anti-racist organizers in the late 90s and became aware of the lynching through a flyer about a libation ceremony for the lynching victims. She then got her hands on a copy of Michael Fetto's book, Lynchings in Duluth. Again, there is a link to that in the description of this episode. Heidi and I discuss the tours that she gives in Duluth. We also discuss effective strategies for being an effective white anti-racist activist. And we talk about how she talked to her stepkids about what she does and how that impacts her work as a substitute teacher. And we also talk about her work as a writer. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed getting to meet Heidi. She gave me an excellent tour. If you're ever in Duluth, you should absolutely go on one of the tours. They're heavy. They're important. And if you are in Duluth, Minnesota, please do look into going on one and spending some time with that. I will not be doing any sponsorships or promo codes or anything like that for these episodes. However, through the end of summer, any support that comes through anchor.fm slash BTS podcast will be donated to the ACLU in support of their work. Please do look up CJMM, buy the book Lynchings in Duluth. I found it to be a really helpful read for context and an understanding of society and how um, and how things can just go so horribly, catastrophically wrong. And a lot of the mistaken understandings that happen in something like when something like that happens. So please do pick up the book. Again, there's a link to it. I recommend purchasing through bookshop.org. All proceeds from bookshop.org go to supporting local bookshops, and that is important. You can also select the local bookshop near you for money from your purchase to go to. Please do subscribe, rate, review, share this podcast. And again, if you haven't listened to the previous two episodes, go back and do that. They're great. Jordan and Teresa are incredible and share a wealth of knowledge. And I am very excited to release these three episodes. You'll hear us talk about an event in June of 2020. Obviously, that event did not happen because of the pandemic. However, they are rescheduling the event again for next year. So hopefully that will work out. Brian Stevenson is scheduled to come speak. So you can look into that at ClaytonJacksonMcGee.org. I will also have a link to their website in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Hey, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook, and today I am in Duluth, Minnesota. It's chilly. <laughs> it's January in Duluth, 
with Heidi Buckhanson. Hi, Heidi. Hello. <laughs> Bach Hansen. I'm sorry. Okay. I even wrote down the phonetic <laughs> pronunciation, like the composer Bach, and I yeah. still got it wrong. I'm sorry. That's okay. uh, she is the board secretary for the Clayton Jackson McGee Memorial, uh, and she has been in Duluth since 1995. She is also a substitute teacher and freelance writer. So... A little bit of background, the Clayton Jackson McGee Memorial Inc. is an organization that, and please do jump in if I'm not defining it correctly, uh, is in existence to bring attention to injustices that have been, uh, for lack of a better word, like swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. Specifically a lynching that took place in Duluth in 1920. Yes. And Heidi and I have been have gotten in touch because I am here to record a few episodes around people who are involved in organizing the commemoration event of the 100-year mark, which is in June of this year, 2020, mm -hmm. to bring attention to that, A, this happened, uh, B, just because it's in the past does not mean that the issues uh, that sort of caused it to happen and the mindsets that caused it to happen don't exist any longer, and Heidi Correct. was, uh, thank you, <laughs> was, uh, uh, we talked about her background before this and how she got involved, and I would venture to say that she is very instrumental as one of the co-founders of the Clayton Jackson McGee Memorial Inc. in bringing attention to that uh, these issues are still a part of our society, and when she in the, what was it, the 80-year commemoration? Yeah. Is that when the in article came out? Yes. So you did a really beautiful job, and I feel like I will chop it up a little bit, of explaining your article and how it tied together recent ev events in the late 90s yes. to the lynching and brought it to public attention, which it had been very much swept under the rug. Yes. I um, It was it was connected, well, I was trying to connect a, a variety of threads, but Essentially, I had met um, some anti-racist organizers in Duluth at that time. Um, I became aware of the lynching itself because I went to, I responded to a flyer that said that uh, we could go to this libation ceremony about for these lynching victims. I had no idea that this had happened here. This was before, you know, I'd been here for two years. And uh, so we went and then I came back and sort of found the book, someone handed me the book, and I, I read it, and it was, you know, it's about places that I walked every day because I was, uh, I didn't have a car at that time, so I would walk past the location mm -hmm. almost every day, and, and I worked within a block of where the lynching had happened, so it, you know, it, it impacted me as, a, as an absence, as an absence of comment, as an absence of, of acknowledgement, and then sort of having read about it, then it became about how, why is it not acknowledged? Why is it not being talked about, you know? And so writing the article, I mean, you know, it was just an article, but it had a lot of impact that seemed mm -hmm. outsized, especially for me and not being a journalist, really. I mean, I was just a, you know, volunteer feature writer at an alternative newspaper. So it was kind of a new thing for me. Um, and then to have something sort of impact in that way was was pretty intense in some ways. Um, and then, you know, what grew out of it, which was basically, uh, it was like a, another spark. And I always thought of myself as, a, as like a um, relay person because there were lots of things that had led up to that and led mm -hmm. up to me knowing it, you know. Right. Michael Feeder writing the book and the book not being available and then it being available and then... Uh, just well, other even things the event that, that you went to, right? Like, uh, someone organizing yes. that event to bring attention, right? And so, Kwaisi Jahi at that time was was also a newcomer in. So when he he had this ceremony, it was just there were only probably 10, 15 people there, but just mm -hmm. to, at and at the grave sites. And the grave sites at that time were the only acknowledgement anywhere. And the reason they had been acknowledged was sort of an accident in a way. Um, some, or, some environmental activists were trying to prevent the expansion of a road that was going to infringe on the poor farm uh, cemetery, which is essentially mostly unmarked. But they recently we had a road expansion that also dug up some 
grave. So they're, you know, the, it was not marked well. And so they thought that that's where they were buried. Mm. And so when they tried to find out if that's where they were buried, they found that, no, they were buried at Park Hill Cemetery. And every, and the Park Hill Cemetery had always known that they were there. But they were unmarked. And so that church of the guy who had been doing this activism, he... Uh, got those gravestones marked and paid for by the church he was a member of, First oh. Lutheran. And so that's where we were having that ceremony. Right. And, but it's so out of the way, you know, it's on the edge of town, you know. Right. And it's <laughs> so. very removed from the reality of what happened. Exactly. Like, it is still sweeping it under the rug. Because Absolutely. who is wandering cemeteries? Right. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, and... Uh, and I think for listeners, for context, mm-hmm. one of the reasons, and, and I feel that it was a very good reason why the graves were initially unmarked, was mm-hmm. because obviously yes. uh, if a lynching happens, it's not a very friendly environment right. to those people. And so to prevent the graves from being mistreated yeah. and um, and those men even like just disrespected even after right. their lives, um, yes. they remained unmarked to as like a safety measure. Yes, absolutely. That's that's partly true. But I think it's also because, you know, simply I think well, pe- we yeah. don't realize these days that a lot of and a lot of folks in those days couldn't afford. I mean, and obviously their families. Yeah. You know, could Elmer Jackson's family who was the one person who, who's who's who knew what had happened to his son, you know. Mm-hmm. He did change Virginia, cross it out and make sure that his son was marked for where he came from, right? Right. Um w- he left his son here, though, you know? Like, yeah. he came here weeks after. They dug him up to make sure it was his son. But oh. then he left him here. Yeah. Which is interesting because I think... But he did change the death certificate to say who he was for sure and where he came from. Yeah. And it was important to him. But we've ha- I've had, over the years, every now and then, someone will contact me and say, we should repatriate those bodies to where they came from, you know, to their proper in a friendly ground in essence yeah and it was like well the fact that elmer jackson's dad decided to leave him here to me that's an indication and i think it was a a way of making sure we'd have to remember it someday you know what i mean yeah like like if they had been removed yeah we would never have had to confront it yeah like accountability isn't there right that's a that's a good point i hadn't thought of that um and can you explain a little bit what else was going on in 2000 when you wrote this article where you were tying, like, what issues were you bringing together at the time to to bring this up? In 1994, there had been a triple murder um, by a white young man who had killed um, three other young men that were at a party that he would, his girlfriend was at. There was an allegation of rape um, against his girlfriend. And two of the young men were African heritage and one was white. And the boy, the young man, uh, instead of calling the police because his girlfriend had allegedly been raped, he decided and said to get in a car, go home, get a gun, come back and shoot them, all three of them, dead. Um, It was an extremely traumatic event um, for survivors, for the community and everything. But one of the key reactions was blaming the victims um, for their deaths, for their own deaths, um, mm-hmm. that it was somehow justified. You know, again, this idea that if, an Af- if, if, if a white girl is accusing these boys of rape, you know. It must be true. It must be true. And not only that, but just, um, yeah, the, the total uh, smearing of these young men's uh, character that happened in the newspaper mm-hmm. and everything that happened. So then you get to the the trial and when the young man is uh, the killer is prosecuted and sentenced, the sentence he got was extremely light mm. and people's, and I don't remember exactly, but it was uh, light for three murders. I mean, it was, it was extremely light and uh, people said at the time that he got uh, He got prison for the murder of the white boy and the other two for free, Mm. you know. Um, Then the the murderer went back and appealed his sentence, thinking it was too light and the, uh, like, too too hard. He wanted less less time yet. And actually the judge, he had a different judge who done, I I think he's still in prison, 
actually. Mm. Or if if he is still in prison, he's getting out soon. Um, yeah. So there, this was, but the but it wasn't so much about the murder itself. It was about the 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 reaction of the community mm-hmm. was so intensely uh, defensive of the murderer that it was astonishing to people. Right. Um, sickening, really. I mean, it was really sickening. It was it was uh, very troubling to have people saying the things that they were saying. Now, this was just before I arrived here. Um, mm-hmm. But there is the three and the three, right? So yeah. there, was, there was kind of a parallel. And there was a parallel in the reaction, and there was a parallel in the in this sort of defense of it, a, a lynching, in essence. You know, that we don't wait for the, ju- the law. We're just going to take care of it right now. Yeah. You know, um, and, yeah. So tying that in, um, people were pretty... Uh, I, I had online conversations with people years after that who are still saying, you can't draw the connection. You know, you can't, you shouldn't do that. And then having, you know, our former mayor, mm-hmm. uh, Don Ness, in that same conversation step up. He was friends with one of the victims. And he said, no, there's no question about how this happened and why it happened and how the reaction was. And so it was interesting to be part of that conversation because, yeah, Don had to step in and, and make a statement. It was pretty... Um, it, it, yeah, it was, uh, difficult. So the community, um, still has a lot of defensiveness over that, that has a thread that goes from, you know, the beginning. I mean, when, and this town, honestly, we've always had a very weird relationship with African uh, American folks. Our first non-native person born here was black. Most people don't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, half Ojibwe, half African American, and uh, <sighs> along with that, you always had these early um, newspaper articles of treating uh, African heritage men as outsiders and dangerous inherently. You know, so right. I I found articles from like eighteen seventies about black soldiers getting off a, a, off a you know, off the boats and getting into altercations in a bar and the, and the outrage, you know. Right. So it's, it, there's that racism. But there was a very strong black community here in 1900 to 1920. And when the lynching happened, the population dropped by about half within the next 10 years. Yeah. You know, so people fled. And, our, and what I say when, when I give the tour and stuff is that our population has never recovered. The, I mean, the black population has never recovered right. from that hit. And... Even just historical, um, the way communities pass down history to each other, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of passing on stories and that was completely interrupted because of that, that upheaval. Which also means the white population hasn't recovered. Like that healing, like you can't heal from something that you don't acknowledge. Right. Right. And to not look in the mirror, like Mm -hmm. I find it fascinating that, uh, anytime, there is the assertion made that something was racist Mm -hmm. that, I mean, it takes just as much effort to get upset over that assertion as it does to like, look at yourself and go, Oh, was there like, how hard is that to just ask yourself with any confrontation that we have, someone tells us you're doing this or you're doing that. Mm -hmm. It's, um, and I understand on a like primal level why that is, but there's a there's Evolution. a white denialism that's really Absolutely. important and it's really and important. Yeah. Right. And but just the the idea of acknowledging a crime like that, you know, to being able to say the truth of what happened, uh, white people have always covered yeah. that that up since Certainly. the beginning. I mean, forever. So. So the you were one of the co-founders mm-hmm. of the Clayton Jackson McGee Memorial. Yes, of many co-founders, yes. Yes, one of many. Mm-hmm. So since the organization has started, uh, what have, like, what do you, I guess, I mean, as a group, what do you do as organizers? And then personally, what do you do? So we could, let's just start as, like, what the organization does. Well, in, originally, our prime directive was was having memorial built, you mm-hmm. know. Um, that happened within three years. And then it was, you know, sort of peripheral things to that, having a day of remembrance every year. Um, but it also became about scholarships. Um, we give a scholarship every year to uh, a young student in Duluth pursuing any kind of post-high uh, school education. Um, we've done that since the beginning. Uh, we recently added on uh, 
driver's ed grants because I don't know how it is everywhere else in the country, but in Duluth, uh, when I, well, when I was a kid, d driver's ed was free, you know, as part of your school. Oh, really? Right. Okay. And so now it costs $450 just to take the class. Right. So if you want to get your license before you're 18, you have to take the class. And, uh, yeah, so we have a lot of students who would need transportation. We have a, we have public transportation, but it is not ideal. Um, I mean, we are a small city, so if you want, it, it ha adds a lot of time to your commute. And not only that, but not all, I mean, yeah. even, I lived in Seattle for five mm -hmm. years, and uh, if you're a construction worker and start work right. at five o'clock in the morning, forget it. buses aren't running at that yes, time. And exactly. so you're just expected, which is fascinating to me, that I'm like, yeah. oh, how much do you think construction workers get paid that yeah. they can just yeah. all own cars? Right. So, so yeah. So it's um, driver's ed programs. Um, we, we are aiming for 20 kids this year. So it's, we're a small place, but, you know. And also just educating folks about the connection uh, between uh, historical realities and present-day realities. Which is what the tour you know? is that you lead, yes. correct? Yeah. So, yeah. So I give tours um, as part of uh, a cohort of downtown organizations. Um, we're sort of the ending of that, but they go to you know, the different shelters and the different uh, missions and places where people can get food and shelter and uh, end up at, uh, at the memorial. And so we kind of mm -hmm. draw the line between how, how, how does it affect people if you live in a place where the only uh, visible acknowledgement of African heritage at all is this lynching memorial? Right. Right. If that is your only indication of black heritage in a community, that is uh, distressing, you know, yeah. it's traumatizing. Absolutely. So, so yeah. So we talk about that and, you know, yes. So, so I give tours about every two weeks or so, even okay. in the winter. <laughs> Which, yeah, which it is, I don't know how cold it is outside right now, but it's, it's about 10, very cold. And there was, there was another tour happening when we went to yes. the memorial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that the same one that you lead? No, I don't know. There was some kids, so I'm not sure where they were from. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about the efforts around getting the memorial established? Sure. Um, you know, when we first went to the mayor, it's interesting because he wrote the preface to an edition of the book that never got widely released, but he, um... So he was aware of it, the mayor. Mm -hmm. But when we, when, when some of our organizers went there to ask him about having the city behind us to build a memorial, I think his response was something like, why would we do that? Right. You know, why would we want to bring attention to this negative piece of history? How, how are we going to justify that to folks? You know, um, But he was persuaded uh, with conversation about how you can't really... Well, you, for one, my whole stance personally, was you can't talk about race in Duluth without talking about this first. You have to start here because it's such a huge mark on who we are supposed to be or who we are. Yeah. You know, and so if you can't acknowledge this, if you can't even talk about it, that's that's scary. You know, I ran in, I talked to people who had all kinds of uh, stories about knowing that this had happened here and not and knowing that most people didn't know. And things like, for instance, um, I talk about the, the oral histories that got passed down. So we know that people left en masse after the lynching, African heritage people did, and that, um, you know, they pass on that knowledge that this is a bad, this is a place that's dangerous to you. So we, we talked to somebody after uh, we'd started building the memorial, and one of the things that uh, we heard was that someone had gone into sh Chicago um, was teaching high school or something in Englewood, which is a predominantly African-American uh, uh, impoverished community in the south side of Chicago, walked into a classroom, said where she was from, Duluth, Minnesota, and the kids said, or one of the kids said to her, oh, they lynch people there. This is before any of the publicity of things that have happened, you know, when we built the memorial and it hit the newspaper. This was before all of that. And, um, yeah that's an indication of how that knowledge gets passed down and the wariness of a place that won't even address it, right? Right. So to us, it was acknowledgement first and that the memorial itself would be the first step, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it got built in three years, um, which was nickels and dimes from regular folks primarily. We did get some matching funds here and there. Um, but for the most 
part. It was a uh, community effort. The city did help um, with lots of things, uh, but it was it was people in the community. We got a big fat check from somebody whose father had been a jailer that night mm. um, that had uh, been traumatized. And as he was uh, dying, you know, in, in dementia and various things, that that was the one thing he was obsessed with in his dying wow. days, um, that he was very fixated on remembering this night that it was predominant in his thoughts. Um, and that it was, and that was, was that the first his family had heard of it? No, uh, they okay. they knew, um, but it was just they. So they gave us money because they were like, we know he would have wanted to support this. So yeah. you know, and then Warren Reed, you know, finding out about the the lynching, <laughs> two people it impacted their lives severely. One was the the current chief of police who found out because of the article. The other one was Warren Reed, who was the great grand great grandson of the. Uh, lyncher Louis, Louis Dondino who wrote the, the book who wrote the book the lyncher in me so he you know he found out because of doing genealogy research online and finding uh, his great-grandfather's name in my article so that's it's, it was sort of one of those things where two people had a, a trajectory change because of that and your current chief of police mm -hmm. is the is he the Great-grandson? He's a grand-nephew of, of Irene Tuscan, the accuser. Right, which um, for listeners, so presumably, uh, very few of you have read the book mm -hmm. called, is it? I, it's I, called I, The Lynchings in Duluth. Right? That's what it is, okay, which I just finished, and um, I couldn't quite, with my eyeline right now, reach the title. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I couldn't see it to make sure. So it's called yes. The Lynchings in Duluth, Yes, and it recounts what happened, which mm -hmm. in short is that and I don't know, there's not like a short way to describe it necessarily, mm -hmm. but a white girl, she didn't even necessarily accuse black men of raping her. Her, a boy that she was sort of running around with who was mm -hmm. known for being a gambler and, uh, frankly, a pain in the ass, uh, mm -hmm. and not necessarily a good kid, went to work, said that, six black men had raped this girl that he was spending time with mm -hmm. and then basically mob mentality ensued shortly thereafter. Yes. Uh, uh, several men were arrested. A doctor investigated said that there was probably not a rape that happened at all. Mm -hmm. um, none of that, like the information that the doctor found was not really shared with anybody mm -hmm. at all. Um, and then as we've discussed, uh, three men were lynched. And it was, like, definitely a heavy read. I do encourage you to read it because there's a lot of crossover, not just to, like, parallels in Duluth, but also in America mm -hmm. <laughs> in general. Like, it's yes. not limited to this one city. It's like, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So there's, there's a lot in, like, the Venn diagram of 2020 and 1920. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more unfortunately, in common, then there isn't just perhaps some of the language has changed. And so I definitely encourage listeners to read it um, for an understanding of what happened. It was intense. There are there was probably half the book that like every two pages, I'd like put it down for a little bit and come back to it. Uh, because it it's a lot, which means it's also doing the subject justice, because it's not a light subject. Um, I don't remember why I brought all that up, but the point is, is that, uh, so yeah, so it is something that's pretty major and, and this memorial digs into, like, there's so many good quotes around, like, nonviolence mm -hmm. and loving people and doing the right thing. Yeah. And, uh, how did you, how did you as an organization get... Oh, so, no, I don't remember what we're talking about now. The chief of police. So the yeah. chief of police is the grand-nephew yes. of the girl mm -hmm. who was supposedly raped. Yes. And her name was not publicly released. Mm -hmm. Was it until 2000? Well, I mean, if he had gone back, if, if any of those family members had gone back and looked at the old records. But when Michael Feeder wrote his book, he believed that those records had been destroyed. I think they were just sent to... MHS down in St. Paul. I okay. think that's part of it. So that it wasn't easily accessible. Right. Um, there was certainly one of those things where the rumor was if you went and to the 
Historical Society and you asked about it, they would tell you that all those records were destroyed. It wasn't true, um, and it's hard to say if that was how that got you know, as was, a rumor was, right. was perpetrated. I'm sure somebody did, you know, there was a resistance to it. But it's interesting because if you go to, if you, in those days, if you went to the public library and you went to the, uh, you know, the microfilm of all the, new, of the newspapers and you open that drawer, all of them would be in perfect condition except for the one from June uh, of 1920. That one was always taped together, falling apart because People would go down there, and this is the only source they had for the oh. for what had happened. So that's why he didn't know, because it was only in those old newspaper articles that his, yeah. his uh, great aunt was, would be her named, and right. she was, and they never talked about her name, even though it would come up periodically over the years um, in the newspaper every now and then, like the NAACP would have some sort of thing. Right. Um, her name, the accuser's names were never talked about. Her name was never brought up, and so yeah. because of that, the chief of police did not know until right. much later. And then in the book uh, that Michael Fido wrote in mm -hmm. 1970, the names weren't published, but then in the reissue, which I believe yes. came out in the last... This year. Oh, really? Yeah. This oh, year. This year, it was he finally had the names changed. The reissue in 2000 still kept the original pseudonyms. Um, he was not happy about that. Um, he did Got not it. want them to do that, but they didn't change anything in the original. Okay. So. And so the chief of police did not find out until later in his life. Until 2000 when my article came out. Yeah. Right. So, so that's that's sort of like the mm -hmm. what I was tying into, like, mm -hmm. why he knows that. And so... Yeah. Um, how have relations between the organization and, like, the city been in terms good. of, like, city officials? Very good. I mean, really, we've had, we've had a lot of support um, right now, you know, with, with the upcoming events. It's been good, you know. Yeah. Um, I would say that if you looked around the country at all the different communities, and there are dozens, that have histories very much like this. they don't I mean, hundreds have, even. They yeah. don't have the same support that we have had. Um, yeah. since 2000. And and that breakthrough and having the memorial. I mean, we were the first memorial in the country yeah. to lynching victims, which really you know, Oh yeah. This is it. <laughs> they they there were people like so for instance Emmett Till has a historical plaque, right? right. So you will find plaques here and there. Most of the time, they're not going to be in places where pe they're easily accessible. Mm -hmm. Emmett Till's plaque, I believe, is down by the river where his body was found. It's not, like, in downtown. Our memorial mm -hmm. is downtown where it happened. Yeah. Um, it's very visible. Yeah. You know, mo and it's the only one of its kind. You don't... No one has anything but plaques anywhere else until EJI built their memorial two years ago mm -hmm. in, in Montgomery, Alabama for all of the uh, communities. So, And their, their goal, of course, is to... Um, the design goal of that memorial is for each individual. They've almost made memorials for everyone, really. You can bring home a piece of that memorial, but we already have one. So we're working on that, getting that yeah. piece of that memorial in Duluth. But it's interesting because we're the only community that actually already has one, um, a memorial wow. that's been built. So, yeah. So until two years ago, there were no memorials. And, you know, and it's probably, it's, it has to do with... Uh, those places are still dealing with Southern attitudes um, mm -hmm. and the resistance, uh, but there are plenty of people who are working very hard to get their own sort of acknowledgments there and dealing with that on their own. So, yeah. yeah. So I have a question that occurred to me on my way, well, sort of as we were talking. Mm -hmm. As, uh, so Heidi's white, <laughs> as a white person, how has it been for you... Uh, I get, well, this is, I have many questions that have to do with this, but how have you discussed this with other white people in a way that has been, um, more successful and like, you know, I think there's, it's an important to learn how to talk in a way that people will listen. Mm -hmm. It's very easy for us to like assert the way that we feel, but a lot of times if we just do that sort of as like the, uh. I guess in sales, it's like a cold call. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a little bit of a cold Like, that is a turnoff, and I think psychologically we know that. And if the goal is to really change minds, mm -hmm. uh, you can't come in hot with certain things because no sure. one's listening. Right. So what have you found as, like, effective strategies to talk to other white people about this? I mean, you know, it's been a weird thing because I – although I've been an activist since I was out of college, um, it's – 
being a white anti-racist activist is, I mean, that started for me in Chicago, which is an easy place to start in that way because there's plenty of organizations around you, right? Maybe not white organizations, but I certainly learned a lot from anti-racist activists in Chicago. Um, started reading Race Trader, <laughs> you know, because I was volunteering at a, at a commie bookstore down there. So I was reading stuff that really blew my mind. I mean, I come from a suburban... Uh, I call my family a white flight family in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think they would agree with me on that. But if you look at our family, it, it's definitely a family that's yeah. fled from places that are now full of people of color, but yeah. but still live now in a place that does not have very many people of color. So I grew up very insulated from mm -hmm. black culture completely. Even though I lived near Chicago, that was a very distant place to me. Mm -hmm. And so... For me, it's always been about self-education. And mm -hmm. so as far as teaching others about anti-racist work and stuff, it's I don't really approach it that way. For mm -hmm. me, it's more like uh, leading by some kind of example, I guess, in yeah. that, you know, my stack, make, becoming an expert on something or reading a lot about something means self-education, you know, taking responsibility for that education. So for me, it's been about that. Yes, I had a lot of friends who, I, in a lot of ways, have been alienated from me to a degree because they couldn't understand why this became so important for me, I guess. Yeah. You know, like, didn't know how to talk to me about it. I definitely had conflicts with some friends who were in that same sort of mode of white denial. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is not my problem. Racism is not up to me. I'm not a racist. All of the, I've had probably a bazillion conversations about that over the decades. Yeah. But, um, but I've never been one about persuading. It's just about being, uh, just keep going, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, you, you will find, I've been interested actually, because when we first started this work, we were the only organization in Duluth that, I mean, we were majority white. I mean, Duluth is 95% white. Mm -hmm. um, Still today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so to, to have that group happen, it was the first truly integrated group that was always had people of color uh, and, and African heritage and white people working together to do this, but being completely devoted to the idea of dealing with history and racism in the present day. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's just, it's a responsibility, I mm -hmm. guess. I don't know anything else. I don't know how to, Well, yeah, no, I, know. I agree with you. I yeah. think it's just... It's just res my, my responsibility. <laughs> it's like the responsibility of just being human. Yeah, exactly. Like, and so it is so, fascinating to me when people are like, that's not my problem, mm -hmm. which is also interesting yeah. because men are very quick to make the violation of a woman, mm -hmm. their problem. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I'm like, interesting that, like, there's no line in the sand for that specific women's right. Yeah. And to me, I'm like, well, it's probably because you think women are weak and that, like... Yeah. And, and fair enough, we are much more easily taken over by a man than a man is by another man. However, it's interesting how it's like, that's yeah. where men will go and hunt down and kill somebody over. Sure. But to, and cross that gender line for that racism then, history. Like so, you yeah. talk about lynching history. Right. I mean, is this a white story or a black story? There were three or six, if you count the three who weren't killed, yeah. black people there. Everybody else who was black was locked in their houses, terrified for their lives. Yeah. Right? Scared. So ten thousand white people were there. Whose story is it? Right. That's a very good point. That's as simple as it is. It's it's white history. Lynching is white history. It's yeah. not black history. So yeah, you know, what's some of your recommended reading for people who uh, would like to self educate? Like, if you had a top five books, top I know it's so hard to pick. It's very hard to pick. <laughs> uh well, I mean, I read. I've oh, I have a lot of books that I've been reading. I've been reading books about the Scots Boy Boys. I'm reading a book. I read fiction all the time, too. But I'm reading books about different uh, 1919 things, like Blood in Their Eyes, about the Elaine Massacre. Mm -hmm. um, but also uh, things like One Drop of Blood, which is a big, thick book written by a white guy talking about the history of race, essentially. Mm -hmm. Talking about how race became a thing. Um, and, you know, it 
encompasses all the different things about uh, Native and African American and and uh, uh, I think Latino too. No, maybe I, it maybe doesn't really address that, but it's you know just books about. Um, I try to read history so that I understand the present. I mean, yeah. that's mostly what I read. So yeah. that kind of thing. Um, I have a huge bookshelf of books about <laughs> that that is all about that stuff. So, you know, and Race Trader Journal, which is out of print, but I just discovered is online, oh, actually, nice. which is basically a study of, it's like whiteness studies, in essence. It's about uh -huh. the history of anti-racism work amongst white folks. It started written in the 90s, so early 90s. So I started reading that again because I only got a hold of one copy of it back when I was a young pup. <laughs> But that kind of blew my mind, the concept of a race traitor. What does that mean? Right. You know, what is that about? Why would one want to be a race traitor? What does that mean? You know? And, yeah. <laughs> and I find it fascinating to think of people in that way of groups mm -hmm. um, as if there's teams and there's some sort right. of, like, win or lose dichotomy. Right. That I'm like, who's winning? Who's losing? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, and like, what's, what is being won? Like, yeah. I'm very, like, where, mm -hmm. like, there's not, yeah, it's interesting to me how people will set up just showing up and existing as a human as if it's like a sport. Yeah. Um, whether that's financially or in terms of like a group of people and like belonging and in group and an out group yeah. that, uh, but it's amazing to me, too, about how important covering up that history has been. Yes. For people's sense of well-being, I guess, or sense of good history. Well, um, you know, my, yeah. if you know your great-grandfather was possibly involved in racial violence, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, to me, that is not something I need to be ashamed of it's something I need to come to terms with it's right. something I need to look at honestly yeah you know yes I mean and to me it's part of like the idea a lot of people when they read that book um the book on the lynching they think of Irene as a monster in a lot of ways mm. or Jimmy as a monster they they disassociate themselves immediately totally. from the accuser and to me that is the exact opposite of what one needs to do Irene is a total human being yeah she was probably a nice person yeah. You well, know? Yeah. So you can be a nice, good person and still do heinous, horrible things. Yeah. And that is our job, is to connect with the reality that the nicest people can do the most awful things. You know? Agreed. People who are your relatives. Well, people who you love. Connecting with that reality and understanding that, like, um, you know, we talk about people as, like, good or evil right. or whatever... And understanding that, like, not only do hurt people hurt people, mm -hmm. but uh, ignorant people, like, mm -hmm. don't know. And, and I understand that because it's also, like, when we, don't, when we don't talk about things, then we don't set it up for people to understand how to address complex feelings. Right. So it's very easy to have the, like, it's one or the other sort of approach of either someone's good or they're bad and not see the humanity. Right. Because seeing that humanity also makes you address it within yourself yeah. and within the people around you. And so mm -hmm. it's no wonder why um, people don't listen to women when mm -hmm. women say that we've been assaulted. Yeah. Because people want to believe that somebody that they've seen hold a door open for someone also couldn't do this other thing. Mm -hmm. Which is also fascinating because we all do things we're ashamed of. Right. Like, who among us like, doesn't have a few secrets? Right. So, yeah. the, and to not be able to see that and go like, oh, that can like worsen in different areas of someone's mm -hmm. life. Or there, there's so many disconnects there. And I think it's just really important that we have conversations around healing from our own trauma. <laughs> whether it's like trauma of our ancestors passed down. Yeah. Um, and even just... Like, I, it's a very odd thing to collect, but I sort of collect, like, uh, quotes on grief mm -hmm. and, like, managing grief and how to frame it that have helped me deal with my own grief. Yeah. And, and it's just something we don't talk about. And I was at a family member's funeral recently having a conversation with a cousin I'd never met. And 
her sister's fiance just died in a horrible car crash. Well, like, we don't ever talk about grief. And, like, this this side of my family is very different than the other side of my family, which they're still pretty quiet about feelings and stuff. But I, I just know the other side of my family better so I can be in their grill a little bit more. And on this side of the family, it's like, you know, it's a cousin I just met who's divulging to me, like, this thing her sister's going through. So... I put together a few quotes on grief and sent them over because it's just not something we talk about. Like, I know the first time that I had someone close to me die, I felt guilty the first time I smiled afterward because right. it made me feel like maybe you didn't love that person enough mm-hmm. because you're not just sad every day. Yeah. And telling people, there's like all these platitudes that go around of like they'd want you to be happy or whatever. And you're like, it's so much more complex than that. Like, that is not a helpful thing to tell right. someone. Like, and so now I should live my life in service to this person who died. Like, mm-hmm. it just, it sets things all up wrong. And if we're doing that with something that we can all definitively agree exists, which is death, mm-hmm. um, that same inability to address the complexity of things that it, so many people are in denial of, I mean, I guess that's why also some people are in denial of the idea of death, too, right? Yeah. But <laughs> but yeah. it it is really, and I think it's unfortunate because it, it doesn't do ourselves or our own wellness us it does our own wellness a disservice as well as like the wellness of everyone around us. Um, what are some because what you do is really heavy. <laughs> it's not uh, like even the organization itself in intent and in origin is like awful. What are some things that you do to cope? Hmm. Um, well, it's interesting because after the building of the memorial, um, I fell away for a while and for the first time in my years as an activist had to sort of deal with my own mental health. So I sort of dropped off the face of the earth for most people I knew, um, to deal with that. Um, so yeah, they're not always well. (laughs) Right. So yeah, um, a work in progress. (laughs) But I would say uh, now, I think coming back at it again this time with another big event coming, um, you know, it's just, uh, uh, I think in the past, I've always had this kind of push me, pull you problem between activism and making a living. Mm. Um, and yes, as so, one does. So as one does. Um, but I feel pretty lucky at this point now, getting into my 50s, um, that, that it's easier for me to just be all in. Um, as far as like, okay, we have this to do until June and we're going to just do that. And you know, yeah, my working life can take a backseat for a while. Yeah. (laughs) And that's fine with me. (laughs) Totally. You know, (laughs) one thing we talked about before we recorded was, uh, that you are involved in activism in the same community that you're also a substitute teacher. Yeah. How's that been? Oh, it's fine. I mean, you know, most kids don't know anything about who you are anyway. Yeah, you know, you walk into a classroom and they and they, you tell them you're Miss B. You don't tell them, you know, you, you know, <laughs> Miss Bach Hansen is too complicated. That's true. <laughs> so, yeah. That so is I don't, true. I don't even, you know. But it does mean that things come up. Um, it's certainly true that uh, right now Duluth is in a place where um, we don't talk. There's a lot that isn't talked about. Um, there's a lot of 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 changes and demographics that are slowly coming about and I would say that uh, talking about race is a taboo thing Mm -hmm. in our schools right now as a way of avoiding conflict yeah so uh, nobody wants anybody to be upset so they don't talk about racism at all almost it seems like most some teachers do um, in some places I know Marshall has a good social justice program and kids that work hard on that so there are pockets but as far as uh the average classroom i mean i've walked into classrooms where um it's been like no we don't talk about that you know because Mm. it's too upsetting it causes uh too much to come up for folks and defensiveness you know i mean you got white kids in the class that immediately have their backups backs up and are defensive and you, you know it's hard. So yeah. right now we're, we're dealing with a, a problem with that, I would say, yeah. in the classrooms as far as being able to acknowledge the reality of racism just at its base. Right. <laughs> you know, so mm, that's mm. a hard one. Yeah, which is, God, <laughs> I, I have a friend whose work is around sex ed. Mm-hmm. And similarly, yeah. which is fascinating to me that in 2020 there's still the argument of, like, not teaching abstinence. Right. As, like that being the main form of sex ed. And I think that it's just people's discomfort with the idea Mm -hmm. of like 
the way that I've framed it for people who are like, but it's so icky and da 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 is like, I'm like, yeah, but when you're physically growing through puberty, you get yeah. growing pains. Yeah. Mental growth is also uncomfortable. Yeah. And like emotional growth is also uncomfortable and it comes with it. And I've subbed for teachers who are avoiding teaching sex ed by being out of the classroom, and then I walk in, and I'm the sex ed teacher. I've had that happen to me, which is actually fine, because I used to teach sex ed at Harbor City, so Uh that was fine. But So I had the background, but I couldn't believe it. I was like, are you kidding me? This teacher is just trying to be out of the classroom to avoid it. (laughs) Amazing. They should just phone you in every time. You're like, I'm very comfortable with this, and... Which means I'll probably do a but better job. Can you imagine job. if it was a teacher who wasn't? I mean, what a nightmare. Terrible. I can't imagine, in fact. <laughs> um, okay, so you're married. Yep. You have two stepkids who are grown yep. out of the house. Um, how have you done your activism, worked, maintained marriage, been a step-parent? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's easier now because they're in college. Yeah. But how did that go when they were younger? Oh, it was fine. I mean, to me... It's like, I mean, there's always that question. Do you bring kids along with you on your on your various ventures? And I did not because, um, one, they weren't my, my they were my stepkids, not my, my blood children, as it were. So right. I didn't feel necessarily comfortable dragging them along to things for like that. Um, but it's interesting. They've both grown up to be fervent anti-racist folks, so... I can't imagine how that happened. I guess they figured well, it out I mean, out I didn't own. even try very hard. <laughs> so it was, you know, I mean, it was just by osmosis mostly and books and things around and yeah. talk, lots of discussions well, around the Well, and your husband's a table. philosophy yes, professor. Yes, he is a it's philosophy not like, professor. So. It's not like he's totally removed. No. And so, yes, apparently it all it all worked out. Um, but, nice. Um, yeah, they, uh, they are budding, budding little active types themselves. I very think. cool. So. Um, so the last question I ask everyone on this podcast Mm -hmm. is, so as we talked about before, the whole theme of the podcast is like the behind the scenes. So I have on a variety of, uh, like job types, but then also how stuff is made. So I had on someone from the aluminum industry to talk about how aluminum gets basically from farm to table. Mm -hmm. What is something, a subject, a career, whatever that you would want to hear a future behind the scenes episode about? Oh, goodness. Um, behind the scenes, what do I want to know? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I didn't warn you. (laughs) I warned you about everything else. I was like, is it okay if we talk about this? Is that okay? Uh, uh, well, I go to the post office a lot. I often think about how so, so many people who have been, um, involved in, uh, uh, the military, come out and join the post office. Really? Which is interesting to me. That so, is interesting. Yeah. And so right now, I think there's a lot of, like, Vietnam-era vets and stuff that are getting ready to retire who worked in the post office, which I huh. find intriguing. So, or that generation. I don't know. What would you want to ask them? I don't know. <laughs> I have just, no idea. Just how you what made you? What made you want to do that job after yeah. the military, I guess? I don't know. Fair. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on. Sure. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of BTS Podcast. Again, I'm so grateful that I got to go to Duluth, Minnesota and sit down with Jordan, Teresa, and Heidi. I learned so much from all of them. They all gave me so much to think about, and there's so many things that I wish I would have asked or sat with during our conversations that, in retrospect, uh, taught me about my own podcasting. Please take the time to rate and review this podcast. It really does help in the podcast app. Subscriptions help as well. You can find the podcast at at BTS the podcast across social platforms. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. It'll also come up if you just search hashtag BTS podcast. I want to give a special shout out to Daniel Morrison. These episodes would not have been possible without him. He was instrumental in getting me in touch with all of these guests and getting to Duluth, Minnesota. It was my first time in Duluth. Exciting stuff, certainly. I loved going there and I appreciate him and his family's hospitality. Thank you, Daniel and Dana. Anyways, music on this podcast is by Benjamin Batherum. Thank you again for listening.